Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. This is part two and the conclusion of the Cleveland Strangler. If you haven't listened to part one, stop now and go back and listen before continuing so you don't miss any of the details. The house at 12205 Imperial Avenue was located next to a sausage factory in the Mount Pleasant suburb of Cleveland. Ray's Sausage Factory brought a savory smell to the neighborhood for decades without complaint. However, within a few months of Anthony living there, the neighborhood began to take a sudden foul odor. It was a sickly, putrid odor of death and decay, an odor so bad that the neighbors began complaining to the health department and even the mayor himself. As a result, the sausage factory was made to implement over $30,000 in improvements to its waste management system. Yet the smell never improved. Instead, it worsened. It never occurred to anyone that the smell was emanating from the house next door to the sausage factory, Anthony Soul's home. Now, according to Anthony, soon after he moved back into his recently deceased father's home, he met a woman by the name of Lori Frazier. And he would later say that she was the love of his life, and her leaving him is what started his murder spree. Lori was 37 years old when she met Anthony, and she was the niece of the Cleveland mayor, Frank Jackson. Lori was a mother of four children and suffered from debilitating mental illness. She had been hospitalized several times for depression, hearing voices, and self-harm. She was also an on and off again sex worker and crack addict. Despite her drug use, he treated her well and did his best to keep her clean and eventually to keep her happy and high. Soon, he began renovations on the third floor of the home, and that's where he and Lori lived for the remainder of their relationship. Having been in prison for 15 years, Anthony was fascinated by the wonders of the internet. One of the first things he did was buy a secondhand computer, and he created a profile on a site for people with unusual sexual interests. He was especially interested in the slave and master lifestyle. In an ad he placed in an online forum called Altnet, he stated, quote, If you're submissive and like to please, then this master wants to talk to you. So get your ass on over here now. He described his wish list of items. He wanted a partner willing to, quote, please anytime, any place, and any way. He was determined to bring a third person into his and Lori's sex life who he could abuse. But Lori ultimately wasn't interested. And that's how he lost what he described as the only woman he loved. This allegedly enraged Anthony and made him hate all women who were crack addicts. (laughs) 
Anthony's first known victim was Crystal Dozer. She disappeared the day after Mother's Day in May of 2007. She was 37 years old and the mother of seven children when she went missing. She had lost custody of all of them due to neglect, abuse, and her drug addiction. Crystal was only 13 years old the first time she got pregnant, and she got pregnant again at 14. And she continued having babies with four different men. Eventually, Crystal's mom, Florence Dozer, would take custody of two of her oldest children. Her four daughters were eventually adopted by family, and her 11-year-old son was adopted by his foster mom, but he died from an asthma attack. Several of the men Crystal married forced her into sex work to fund their addictions. Crystal was arrested several times for solicitation, drug possession, theft, and receiving stolen property. Unlike some of Anthony's later victims, Crystal's disappearance was noticed immediately, and she was reported missing by both her mother and one of her adult children. But the police weren't interested in locating Crystal. They told the family that it's not illegal for an adult to voluntarily go missing. Given her background, they assumed that she was on a drug bender somewhere and would eventually return of her own accord. This caused Crystal's oldest son, Anthony, to place over 200 flyers throughout the neighborhood looking for his mother, including one flyer placed on the light pole in front of Anthony's soul's home on Imperial Avenue. And anytime Anthony saw a flyer for a missing woman, he would immediately tear it down and throw it away. After Lori broke up with Anthony, she would continue to visit him periodically. And each time she came for a visit, she would find something disturbing. The house smelled rancid, and Anthony had told her that something had died in one of the walls. One time, there was blood all over his room, on the walls, the ceiling, the floor, and Anthony was covered in scratches and bruises. And during one of her last visits, Anthony told her someone tried to rob him, and she said his neck was, quote, torn up down to the white meat. He told her that he had been scratched while going through an abandoned home looking for scrap metal. Another time, she saw him walking down the street and noticed he had stitches on his right side of his throat this time. And when she asked who hurt him, he stated, quote, I killed the motherfuckers. You don't got to worry about those motherfuckers. I killed them. It appeared that several of Anthony's victims fought hard for their lives, but ultimately lost. Soon after Anthony's release from prison, he was no longer working due to an issue with his heart. Ultimately, he had heart surgery, and they implanted a pacemaker. And because of this, he could no longer work, and so he was receiving disability benefits. And to supplement his income, he would scrounge for scrap metal in abandoned houses. A woman named LaShonda Long disappeared in May of 2008. LaShonda grew up in Cleveland where she fell into a bad crowd and soon found herself addicted to drugs. At only 25 years old, she had a criminal record for drug possessions, trespassing, and petty thefts. LaShonda was removed from her home along with her six siblings going between relatives, foster homes, and group homes. And at one point, she went to live with her father and stepmother, but would repeatedly run away. She had her first child at 13 years old, only a child herself. Her children were eventually taken away from her and she was declared unfit. By the age of 15, she was in and out of juvenile hall and psychiatric care facilities for disturbed children. At 16 years old, once again in juvenile hall, she wrote to her preceding judge and asked to be moved to a school for troubled children. Her letter stated in part, quote, Sir, I am 16 and I have two daughters. 
I can honestly say at the rate I'm going, I'll be dead before I'm 18. She told the judge she wanted help so she could be a good mother and be a good role model for her children. She would never get that chance. Instead, she was dead by the age of 25 at the hands of Anthony Soule. At only four foot seven and 100 pounds, she was easy prey for a predator like Anthony. Tashana Culver's last known address was 12317 Imperial Avenue, just a few houses up from Anthony's home. She was 31 years old and the mother of six children at the time she disappeared. She had a criminal record that included drugs, weapons, burglary, and solicitation. In 2006, Tashana had been sentenced to six months in jail for domestic violence. She had punched and attempted to stab her live-in boyfriend and father to three of her children, Carl Johnson. And Carl would later say, quote, Whenever she put that red lipstick on, I knew what it meant. Unless I tied her down, there was no way I could stop her. I hated to watch the person I loved to hop in and out of cars. Tashana walked out of her prison work release program and headed to her mother's house on Imperial Avenue. This is apparently where she crossed paths with Anthony, only to wind up as one of the bodies that would later be recovered from his backyard. In October 2008, 44-year-old Michelle Mason crossed paths with Anthony, never to be seen again. At 5'7", she was only 85 pounds due to her drug addiction. She was bipolar, HIV positive, and received $1,000 a month in disability from the state. The money deposited in October was never touched. She had a criminal record for most drug-related offenses and solicitation charges. On December 1, 2008, the local paper ran an article announcing a missing rally for Michelle, and it noted that she had not been heard from since she met a sexual predator who had been in prison for 18 years. The gathering was held a mile from Anthony's home, and only five people showed up. Michelle's family placed flyers all around the neighborhood and reported her missing to the police. Once again, they were told that adults are allowed to go missing. Despite recently graduating from a drug program, her family assumed she was doing drugs again. The owner of the liquor store across the street from Anthony's house was finding large plastic bags, which smelled horrendously and were covered in flies. He assumed someone had dumped a dead dog into the dumpster. He tried cleaning it with bleach, but the smell was everywhere. He began dumping bleach and pine saw down all of his drains and in an open area to stop the smell from coming into his store. The smell was so bad, his wife refused to come back to work anymore. And when Anthony would come into the store, he smelled like that same exact stench of death, even stronger. And his sister, Teresa, noticed when he would come over to visit, that smell on him was everywhere. She said it gave her a headache, and he blamed it on the sausage factory or something dying in his walls. Everyone agreed the smell was overpowering. Anthony began making odd purchases, too. Instead of beer and cigarettes, now he was purchasing garbage bags and extension cords every week. Not the regular plastic garbage bags. He was buying heavy-duty contractor bags, which the store owner found odd since Anthony was sickly and had a pacemaker. Yet, 
No one made the connection that the smell of decay and death on Imperial Avenue was coming from Anthony's home or had anything to do with the women who were disappearing, some who were from that very same street. Tanya Carmichael was a 53-year-old mother and grandmother when she disappeared in November of 2008. She became a mother for the first time at 16 and would go on to have two more children. Over the years, she had minor brushes with the law, which included grand theft, concealed weapons, and various charges of robbery. At first, Tanya had her life together. She owned a home, worked as a medical secretary, and chased drug dealers off her street and away from her kids. However, somewhere along the way, Tanya herself fell into the throes of addiction. She lost her home, and eventually, she and her children had to move in with her mother, Barbara Carmichael. Tanya's addiction got so bad, she began selling off things that belonged to her family. Once, she even tried to sell her daughter's camera back to her daughter. In 2005, she found herself in trouble again with the law, and this time, she was sentenced to six months in jail at the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville. Unfortunately, it didn't help. Tanya went right back to the crack cocaine addiction. On the morning of November 10, 2008, Tanya asked her mother for $20 to help a friend. Her mother gave her the $20, and it was the last time she ever saw her. And that evening, she and Tanya's children canvassed the neighborhood looking for her, and they were told that Tanya was last seen on Imperial Avenue, six miles away. After 48 hours, they reported Tanya missing. However, the police were little to no help. They didn't even want to take the report. They told Barbara that, quote, she'll show up after she finishes smoking crack. The police had a callous disregard for the lives of the community they were supposed to serve and protect. Because they wouldn't take a police report, Barbara tried again at another police department that covered the area, which included Imperial Avenue. They, too, refused to take a missing person report. She would eventually be found in Anthony's house of horrors. We know when Anthony was caught that there were 11 bodies found inside and outside of his residence. We will never know the actual number of women he murdered because it's likely some of them were placed in various dumpsters near his house. But some of the victims got away. Gladys Wade began using crack at the age of 24 and had a criminal record to prove it. She had charges for solicitation, battery, assault, drug possession, and theft. She didn't follow the rules, and she didn't care about the law. She grew up tough on the streets and wasn't afraid of too many things. On December 8, 2008, Gladys was 40 years old and had been out of jail for two weeks when she crossed paths with Anthony. As she walked on Imperial Avenue, Anthony approached her and asked if she wanted to drink beer with him. She said she had her own and continued walking past him. Before she could turn around, she felt a powerful arm push against her throat, cutting off her air supply and dragging her into the house. That's when everything went black. She had passed out from lack of oxygen, and the next thing she remembered, she was waking up with a sore throat and a loud scream. Within seconds, Anthony was at her side and punching her in the face. He told her no one could hear her, and she could scream as much as she wanted. Next, he told her, quote, bitch, take off your clothes. Gladys wasn't going down easy, and she fought hard for her life. 
She grabbed Anthony's testicles and twisted them, intending to rip them off. She dragged them both to the stairs where they both eventually fell down. The entire time, she had a hold of his testicles, and he had his hands around her throat, telling her she was fixing to die. He kept telling her to stop fighting, which only made her fight harder. Gladys was able to severely injure him by placing her fingers across his eyes, hoping to blind him. By this time, they were both next to the door he had originally dragged her through, which opened. Gladys took this moment and ran for her life. Gladys ran straight into a restaurant across from his home and begged for help. She begged for them to call the police. They told her she was bleeding and she had to leave the store. But they did call the police, and the police caught up to a stumbling and bleeding Gladys. When the police went to talk to Anthony about the incident, he said, quote, This bitch stole my watch and stole my money. Gladys was taken to the hospital to treat her injuries, but ultimately, police closed the case and said no rape had taken place, and it was a he said, she said situation. With Anthony being on the sex offender list, this allegation of attempted rape should have gone straight to the sex crimes unit. Instead, it went straight into a closed file. And at least six more women were murdered after his attack on Gladys. Anthony's next victim was Kim Smith. She was 44 years old when she went missing in January of 2009. Kim was the primary caretaker for her father, Donald Smith, who was wheelchair-bound. She cooked and cleaned for him and took care of his personal needs. He waited two days before reporting her missing, only to be told that she would come back on her own when she was ready. He placed missing person flyers throughout the neighborhood and offered a $500 reward for information leading to her whereabouts. Later, he would state that, quote, on the street, $500 is like a million dollars. That's when he began feeling hopeless. Amilda Hunter was 47 years old when she went missing in April of 2009. She knew Anthony for years and had been to his house countless times. According to her son, Bobby, she was last seen on April 28, 2009, walking to a friend's house on Imperial Avenue. By nightfall, her family knew something was wrong. Amilda's family never bothered to report her missing. They knew that the police would do very little to help find her. Instead, they created missing person flyers and posted them, along with all of the other posters of missing women, from Imperial Avenue. While the police knew that Anthony was a registered sex offender, most of his neighbors did not. They believed that the system locked up another innocent black man and Anthony went to prison in place of his brother on a trumped-up charge of manslaughter. So no one ever connected him or the smell of decay coming from his home with the numerous missing women from the neighborhood. In fact, he was often asked if he could help locate these loved ones. Nancy Cobbs went missing right after Amilda Hunter. She was often at Anthony's house because her boyfriend sold him crack. It was April of 2009 when the 45-year-old mother and grandmother went missing. Nancy's friend Tanya had dated Anthony off and on, and shortly after Nancy disappeared, she went to his house to party with alcohol and crack. While she was preparing the crack pipe, he turned into a monster before her eyes. He jumped on her, pushed her to the ground, and asked her why she didn't come back the week prior. He screamed at her and said, quote, 
Bitch, you could be the next crackhead bitch dead in the street and nobody would give a fuck about you. At 5 foot 4 inches tall and just 81 pounds, she had no chance of fighting back against Anthony. Instead, she tried to calm him down by doing whatever he said to do. Then he called her a bitch and told her to take her clothes off. She complied. She said his face was twisted like a madman, and he began slapping and punching her. She could feel her eyes swelling shut. She tried to talk to Anthony as if they were still close friends and sometimes lovers. She asked him to stop tripping and let her go to the bathroom. For the next 10 hours, Anthony repeatedly beat and raped her. The next morning, she had faked a phone call, and he walked her to the door and pretended as if nothing had happened. Tanya never reported the rape, but she did tell her friend Janice Webb that Anthony had slapped, choked, and raped her. She told Janice to be careful around him. Despite this warning, she was the next woman to go missing. Janice Webb was 48 years old when she went missing in June of 2009. According to the book entitled Nobody's Woman by Steve Miller, Janice could have been voted the most likely to go missing. She would often walk the streets of the Imperial Avenue neighborhood looking to earn some money as a sex worker or score some crack cocaine. Janice had been arrested in 2003 for possession of crack along with friends. For a while, it was enough to keep her clean, but she relapsed hard in 2005 and was back on the streets looking for drugs any way she could get. Her sister would later say that Janice always wanted to kick her addiction, but she always relapsed. Eventually, she started committing crimes to support her habit, including burglary and assault. Up until June 3, 2009, Janice called her sister every day to check in. Then the calls suddenly stopped. That's when she knew something terrible must have happened to her. Her missing person flyer joined all of the other flyers up and down Imperial Avenue, yet no one ever made the connection with Anthony Sowell. Diane Turner was 48 years old when she went missing in September of 2009. Diane had an extensive criminal history with 15 separate drug offenses on her record. By the age of 24, she had three children in the custody of the state due to neglect and abuse. She wanted her kids back, but each time she tried, she couldn't follow the steps needed to retain custody. One children's service report stated, quote, Due to her drug abuse problem and the inability to provide proper care and support, the children should be removed from her care. The mother has had numerous opportunities to involve herself in services. She has not done this and is not likely to provide for the children in the near future. The young age of her children means that they would best benefit from a grant of permanent custody removal and adoption. Despite losing her children, she tried hard to break herself free from the grasp of addiction. In May of 2009, she began attending AA meetings and entered several drug rehab programs. But each time she would relapse, all of her life, she was saddled with epilepsy and mental health problems. This would eventually lead her to cross paths with a predator who would discard her body in a room of his house and let it decompose as unwanted trash. Talasia Forsten was just 33 years old when she went missing in June of 2009. She had been adopted at nine years old by Inez Forsten from the county foster care system. 
Her birth parents were both drug addicts and lost permanent custody of her when she was just five years old and placed into Inez's care. Inez loved her daughter, despite the tough times that Talasia went through as a teenager. She began smoking pot at the age of 14 and switched to cocaine by the time she was 20 years old. She would periodically run away to a former foster mother's house when she was in trouble. At 17 years old, Talasia wound up in a residential facility for delinquent youth due to her behavioral and mental health issues. Talasia wasn't interested in treatment and would often fight and damage property. She repeatedly attempted suicide and would often wind up in court-ordered mental health treatment facilities. And each time she came out, Inez welcomed her back with open arms, hoping this time would be better for the daughter she chose to love dearly. Talasia's first child was taken away from her at birth. The county report stated, quote, Mother has attempted suicide on four occasions. Mother has engaged in acts of domestic violence, and the child is at risk of imminent harm. Talasia lost a second child to the state for similar reasons. This time, the report stated in part, quote, does not have a permanent home, lacks the parenting skills to care for the child, has only visited sporadically. When she became pregnant with her third child, she was determined to change things. She entered a women's shelter ran by the city mission, sang in the choir, and began attending job training classes. She graduated from the program only to come back a few months later, begging to be allowed back into the program. She told them if she had to go back out on the streets, she was sure she would end up dead. In a journal entry, Talasia wrote, quote, I feel like an outcast in my family. But as I continue to pray to the Lord, it has gotten me a little better each day, knowing that it is only one more day closer to me being a productive citizen and a good mom to my children. Talasia would often visit the store, Imperial Beverage, across the street from Anthony's home. The last time she went in, she went in with a friend and bought a soda. She was now living a life based on faith and recovery from addiction. It was after visiting Imperial Beverage that she disappeared for good. It took a few weeks before Inez reported her daughter missing. She thought Talasia was in a good place, and she couldn't understand how she could just disappear now that she was finally getting her life back together. The East Cleveland Police Department took a report and gave Inez a list of morgues and hospitals to call. Inez called regularly, but no one ever heard from her again. This is until she wound up as one of the bodies found inside Anthony Soul's home. Now, we know about Anthony's attack on LaTundra Billups from part one. She is the woman who brought an end to Anthony's reign of terror on Imperial Avenue. LaTundra was friends with several of Anthony's previous victims, including Diane Turner and Nancy Cobb. It was during her questioning of Anthony concerning her missing friends that brought about his rage and attack. When LaTundra finally made it to the hospital and reported the rape, they told her they already knew about Anthony's soul and that five other women had already been in and made accusations that they had been assaulted and raped. One of the problems was that many of these women lived on the fringes of society without a permanent address or any way for anyone to get a hold of them. That is one of the many ways Anthony was allowed to fall through the cracks and rape, attack, and murder other women. When the police went to his home to arrest him for the assault on LaTundra and another assault a few days later on a woman named Sean, 
they noticed the putrid smell of death and decay. And they knew right away that that smell could only be from human decomposition. Due to the extingent circumstances involved, they entered Anthony's home and found four decomposing bodies on his third floor. A skull was found separate from the body, placed in a bucket. They found two more bodies in the basement and five bodies buried in the backyard. When the families of the missing women heard about the House of Horrors on Imperial Avenue, they all began contacting the police department to see if their missing loved ones were among the gore and carnage. All of the women needed to be identified through DNA analysis. 11 families received closure, but no answers. Others are still waiting for answers. Initially, Anthony pled guilty by reason of insanity, but later he withdrew that plea and went to trial. He was charged with 11 counts of aggravated murder and 74 counts of rape, kidnapping, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. On July 11, 2011, he was convicted on all but two counts and sentenced to death. He was in the middle of those appeals when he died on February 8, 2021 at the Franklin Medical Center for an undisclosed illness. Many people believe Anthony escaped justice by dying in a mental facility, instead by lethal injection. The property located at 12205 Imperial Drive was demolished by the city leaders and sits vacant today. There have been numerous books and documentaries made about this case, so we will never forget and hopefully never allow something so preventable to happen again to the most vulnerable and marginalized among us. The tragedy of the victims in the Anthony Sowell murder case will never be forgotten. Their lives were brutally cut short by a man who showed no remorse for his heinous crimes. The families of these victims will forever be haunted by the senseless loss of their loved ones, and the community of Cleveland, Ohio, will always bear the scars of this tragedy amongst too many others. It's important to raise awareness around the issue of violence against women and advocate for stronger laws and policies to protect the most vulnerable members of society. We owe it to the victims of Anthony's soul and all of the victims of violent crimes to never forget their stories and to work tirelessly towards preventing such tragedies in the future. And this is part two and the completion of The Cleveland Strangler. Let us know your thoughts about this case. We'll post a couple pictures on our social media and be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. Send us a supporting review and thank you so much for listening to Crime Salad. We will see you next week. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.